chapter 9. We're taking it very slow when it comes to Ezra. You can literally go through the book of Ezra in, in three sermons, but we've taken it easy because we want to make sure that we really take every lesson out from every chapter and not run through it, but really slow down, pause, and see what the Lord has for us. You see, Ezra, his name means helper. If you've been studying and following along with us, his name means helper, which is a type or a symbolic of the Holy Spirit, a helper, the comforter, right? And we know that the Holy Spirit does a few things. One of the things that the Holy Spirit does as it guides, as it comforts, as it, as it convicts, it also ushers in the, the Word of God. It helps now the Word of God penetrate the heart of men and women. And that's why we need the Holy Spirit. Because here we saw and we knew now that for Ezra, he wanted to do one thing. He wanted to, first of all, seek the Word of God. Second of all, he wanted to now do the Word of God. And then third of all, he wanted to teach the Word of God. That is the philosophy of all ministry. That is the philosophy of family, of marriage, of raising children, of, of building the church that belongs to God, to seek His Word, number one, to do His Word, number two, and to number three, to teach the Word of God. Today, they finally make it back to Jerusalem, those that were going with Ezra. From Babylon, taking that journey back to Jerusalem, they finally make it. But we see that when they make it now, they are unfaithful. They were unfaithful. You see, it's interesting because sometimes we're, when we arrive to that place of promise that God has given us, we're arriving and then we become unfaithful. You know, it was told to me once, the most dangerous place of ministry, the most dangerous place in ministry, it's when it's successful. You know why? Because you start to now be unfaithful to God because you believe that everything happened because of your hard work. Because of you, because of your talent, because of your gift. And all of that offends God. Has someone ever offended you by something they said? Maybe a comment that they said not knowing that it was off offensive to you. Maybe something that they did and it offended you. Maybe personally to you. You see, our unfaithfulness offends the Lord. Our sin offends the Lord, but we're going to see here in chapter 9, God's faithfulness in spite of our unfaithfulness. That's amazing. That God is faithful in spite of us being unfaithful. And when here now, the Levites and the leaders and those that show up to Jerusalem with Ezra, they show up, but they now lower their standard when it comes to purity. God has given you a standard that you ought to have when it comes to your purity. When it comes to your holiness, there is a standard, and that standard here is given in God's Word, that you ought to be holy. Holy in everything. In fact, holy even in the relationships that you interact with. You ought to remain holy, and you ought to remain pure. But now here we see that they arrive, they become comfortable now. In Ezra chapter 8, he reminded them, remember, you're holy. These articles that you're taking to the house of God are holy. These finances are holy. Everything that you have here that you're giving, your gift, your time, and your talent must all be holy because it's going to the house of God. But now they show up to Jerusalem and see what happens. They compromise when it comes to commitments. You see, we should be very careful on how we 
uphold our commitments to the Lord, our obedience. Have we compromised when it comes to commitments? Have we now led ourselves, allowed ourselves to enter into temptation? And you see that now the problem here is exposed in chapter 9. And Ezra goes to one thing, he goes to prayer. And I love it because entire chapter 9, we're going to see Ezra's prayer. Ezra's prayer, he's crying out to God. Today we need to cry out to God. You want the Lord to do a revival, then you need to cry out to God. It says here now, in Ezra chapter 9, verse 1, When these things were done, when they finally arrived, the people of Israel, here it says, When these things were done, the leaders came to me, saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands with respect to the abominations of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the uh, and the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your grace. But we pray, Lord, that we would not grow comfortable, Lord, till we start to compromise when it comes to now our commitments. And we fail to separate ourselves from the world. I ask that every part of us would be separated to holiness that would be separated to purity. That there would be nothing in, it, in us or of us, Lord, that would be given over to the world. In Jesus' name, and together we said, Amen. It says here now that the leaders went up, came up to Ezra. What was Ezra doing? He was busy teaching God's Word. He was doing God's Word. He was seeking God's Word. He was teaching God's Word. Ezra, the Bible tells us here. But now that the leaders came to him and said, Israel has a problem. The problem is this, that they have failed and they have not, the Levites, those that were to serve the Lord, those that were to serve in the house of God and the people, starting from the leadership, have not separated themselves. What is the number one thing that God wants from you is your holiness. That you would be separated from the world. That you would be separated from sin. That you would not blend into the, to the sin of the world. That you would stand out from the world. And it says they have not separated themselves. Now the priests, they are now mixed in with the rest. It's a mixed multitude. And it said because they have not separated themselves, inevitably they are picking up these habits from other people around them. You see, when you start to now get comfortable around other people that are living in sin, and you want to consistently and habitually uh, want to practice and blend into that culture, you are going to inevitably pick up those habits now, and that conduct is going to permeate your life. And it says here now that that's what happened. They have not separated themselves. They have not kept themselves holy. They're being influenced now by those living around them. We should not be influencing, influenced by the world, but the church should influence the world itself. And here the world is influencing now God's people. And it says here now in verse, nine, uh, verse 1, ver, uh, in chapter 9, and it says, They have not separated themselves from the people of the lands with respect to the abominations. You see, they haven't se separated themselves, and now they're a part of these abominations. Now they're a part of these detestable practices because they failed to separate themselves. They, God had called them to be a holy race and people.
God said, you guys are, are called to be holy. He intended them for them to be holy, but they polluted themselves. They corrupted themselves by trespassing. And it started here with the leaders, with the Levites. And it tells us how they did it. It, it speaks about what they did to start picking up these habits and these practices that were detestable or abominable in the eyes of God. Because in verse 2 explains what the situation was. God intended these people to be holy. And in verse 2 it says, what happened? For they have taken some of their daughters, some of the daughters of those around them, those that are practicing for and worshiping foreign gods. They've taken wives from the foreigners now, and those families do not honor and fear the God of Israel, the God Yahweh. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves, their sons, so that the holy seed, understand this, the holy seed or the holy family, or the holy gene genealogy, or the holy race now, intended to be holy now, it says here, is mixed. That word mixed is, means it's polluted. The word mixed means it's corrupted now. It is no longer pure. It is now tainted. It is mixed now. Now, now there, it's mixed. That holy seed, the holy family, Israel, that nation is mixed. With the people of those lands, indeed, the hand of the leaders and rulers had been foremost in this trespass. And it says here that in verse 2 that it was the leaders that started this. It was the Levites. It says here now in verse 2, it was the people now, the leaders, the hand of the leaders and the rulers that have been now leading them in this direction. You see, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 1 and 4, God warned these people, when I take you to that land, there are going to be people there that worship foreign gods. You are not to mix in and marry now their daughters, and you are not to give your sons to be married to them because they worship foreign gods. And this outright, outrage was being led here now by the Levites. Protect yourselves from them because you ought to have a godly here marriage. And you can't have a godly marriage when one person here from a foreign land or territory is worshiping another god. It no longer is a godly marriage. You know why God wanted to protect the godly marriages? You know why He warned them about marriage before He took them there? Because marriage and the family was the institution that was supposed to shape everything else. If, if now the nation of Israel had godly marriages, guess what also they would have if they had godly marriages? They would also have godly businesses. They would also have godly ways of life. They would also have a godly government. They would also have a godly social life. It was the marriage. It was the family that God wanted to protect. Because from there on, from that institution, it would shape everything else in life. When you don't have godly marriages, when you have corrupted marriages now, it's going to speak to the corrupted culture. It's the godly family. It's the godly marriage that shapes the culture that we live in today. And the problem here is exposed now. The leaders, some of them come and say, look at these other leaders are leading the way in the wrong direction. So you can be leading, but are you leading in the wrong direction or are you leading in the right direction? Because it says it's the leaders that have started this and have allowed this to take place now. And now they're leading in the wrong direction and everyone is following their lead. And the problem here is exposed because Ezra is doing one thing. He's teaching the Word of God. And when you teach the Word of God, 
and the Holy Spirit is ushering the Word of God, guess what happens? Conviction starts to seep in the heart of man. And they understand that what they're doing is sin. And that's why teaching the Word of God is the best thing that we can do. It's the most healthy thing that we can do because it exposes now our sin. And the Word of God here, as Ezra was teaching it, exposed now the sin that was taking place. The family is not pure. The family is corrupted here. There's sin in the leadership. And there are horrible consequences for this. Now you see what Ezra's response is to this. A man of godliness, of God, a man of holiness. A man that decided to uncompromise when it came to the Word of God. I think that's why it's so important for us to protect the marriage. Because the marriage is what shapes everything else in life. It's what shapes everything else in life. The relationships that are founded on God's Word are those that shape everything else in life. I was, I was really grieved today as I, as I found out about a, a young pastor, only 30 years old, a friend of mine, that he grew up in the ministry and, and his, his father give, gave him now the place of the pulpit and, 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 and to lead the church now for almost 10 years, a decade now, since he was about 21. And to find out today that that he and his wife are, are getting divorced because his wife left him and cheated on him and was unfaithful. You see, no one is exempt from this. No one is. And when I heard these news, it broke my heart because I thought to myself, that can happen to me. And that can happen to any of us. That's why we have to protect the home and the marriage. That's why we have to protect ourselves from those that are around us and what we're allowing to come in. And where we're allowing ourselves to go out. Because it's very easily how we can allow the sin of this world to pollute what God has intended to be a holy seed. It's, you know why I called it a holy seed? Because it starts from the core of who you are. The seed. The foundation. What you've invested in. That you're going to reap now from. You see here in chapter 3 now that this culture of compromise led to one thing for Ezra. And that was the response of Ezra. Because now he's grieved and he starts to mourn. The leaders are leading the wrong direction. It says in verse 3, So when I heard this thing, I tore my clothes, my garments. He was torn when he heard that thing. He was torn to know that there was sin in the camp and in the leaders. He was torn. Why was he torn? Because they were compromising. And these are people that are hearing God's word. That means that people come to church and we come and we hear it at the Bible study, at the Sunday service, and we know what the Word of God says, but we make a choice once we leave whether we want to obey it or we want to disobey it. We make that choice. Nobody can make that choice for you. It doesn't matter how eloquent the, or, 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 or you know, the Word of God is being communicated. You have to make the choice whether you're going to obey the Word of God. And it says here now that he tore his clothes, his garments, and his robe, and he plucked out some of his hair, and of his head and his beard, and he sat down astonished. He was shocked. He could not stand. He was mourning, these physical signs of mourning, these physical signs of repentance. Back then when you tore your robe and you pulled out your beard, it was a sign of shame. Because it would grow out their hair in their culture. They would grow out a beard. So when you, you shaved your beard, it was shameful. It was embarrassing. So he plucked out his beard because he was in shame. Because he was in guilt. Because he was shocked and he was mourning. These are physical signs of the repentance that Ezra felt. A man of God here. He was a man of God here. And it said he, now in verse 4. Then everyone, as he was torn here, everyone who trembled at the words of 
the God of Israel assembled to me. Everyone who was marked by the word of God, who said, we stand for the word of God, came and now followed Ezra here and surrounded him. And here it says that they came and they assembled and gathered to him because of the transgression of those who had been carried away here captive. And I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. They came and they understood together as they were marked by the word of God, as they trembled in fear by the word of God, they came and they sat until the evening sacrifice with Ezra because of the transgression. You know what transgression means? It means that you willfully disobey the Lord. You willfully cross that boundary and that law. That is transgression. That's saying that you understand that you are not to trespass those boundaries, yet you willfully choose to transgress, to move forward when you know you should not. That's transgression. And that's something that completely offends the Lord and the holiness of God. But those that were trembling at the word of God, that were marked by the word of God, went and they were astonished and they sat mourning until the evening sacrifice, mourning and broken and torn completely at the situation that's taking place here. They were, they were mourning, they were broken, they were torn. Isn't that... What we should feel, we should feel the repentance when we see the sin, even in our own lives. What did it say in James chapter 4, verse 7 and 10? What does James tell now the church? He says, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinner, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Those that have a double mind that want to serve this, the flesh and want to serve now the spirit. It says, but then it goes on and it says here, Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy gloom. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and he will lift you up. Why does he say here now lament and mourn? How many times have we been in sin and we're over there having a good old time, you know, laughing and, and, and pride and arrogance, knowing that we're living in sin? He said, no, you, should, you ought to be mourning for this. This is something serious. And they're mourning now because of their unfaithfulness. They're not just brushing it off. It says in verse 5 now, at the evening sacrifice, I arose from my fasting. He fasted all day. You see, a lot of now repentance is expressed in prayer, and a lot of repentance is also expressed in fasting. Because it demonstrates that you, are to, you have turned your mind, you have turned your heart to the Lord. And you want to deny yourself. You want to deny yourself so you can seek the Lord. It said, I arose from fasting at the evening sacrifice. Now, and I love it here, because his prayer now, his worship now that he's about to say from here from verse on 5 to 15, it's the prayer now of Ezra that becomes the evening sacrifice. How many times have you wanted to sacrifice something to the Lord other than prayer? The best evening sacrifice that you can come to the Lord with is prayer and fasting. Because he, ari he arises from mourning because there is a time to mourn, but there's also a time to pray. And look what he says here now. Now that he mourned at the situation, it's time now to pray. And it says in verse 5, I arose from fasting, having torn my garment and my robe. And look what he does. He arises from fasting only to fall on his knees in prayer. I mean, you have to just respect a man like that. That he goes from fasting, he arises to only go on his knees now in prayer. 
And think about, look, what he did, look at his position in verse 5. He said, And I fell on my knees, and I spread out my hands to the Lord my God. He was, he, he was on his knees with his hands lifted high and his heart abandoned to God. And you have to love here, you have to respect now what he's doing because he's demonstrating humility. He's on his knees with his arms high and his heart abandoned, surrendering to the Lord. And his worship and his prayer became that evening sacrifice. He was coming to the Lord in humility. And humility cures every sin of worldliness. Because it shows that you're depending on God. Humility cures, cures worldliness. You see what he's doing here in his physical act? He's surrendering. He's showing repentance in his position. And his physical actions speak of his inward heart and his position, his posture of his heart. He was not numb to sin or conviction. He was grieved now at the sin. What does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit is grieved at sin. And it's grieved on your behalf. Because it knows that in sin, when we're living in sin, we're, we're powerless. The Holy Spirit cannot do it and operate its work in your life and through your life when we're living in sin. And it said that the, the Holy Spirit was grieved here now. And he stood up from fasting only to fall on his knees now and start praying and start crying out to God now on his knees as he's praying. I love what he does here. Because he goes straight to his knees. This is an amazing hunger for prayer. You always know when someone has a hunger to pray. To hear the voice of God when they're willing to go on their knees. Because they're, they're, they're desperate. It shows a, a sign of a desperation. Who else prayed on their knees? Solomon prayed on his knees. David prayed on his knees. Daniel prayed on his knees. Jesus prayed on his knees. Stephen, the first martyr of the church, prayed on his knees. Paul prayed on his knees. Peter prayed on his knees. And guess what he does? He also raises his hands high. He raises his hands and he opens them. Now, what is he doing? He's signifying surrender, but he's also signifying openness. This is the genuine now feeling, the genuine feeling in a heart of every now reawakened backslider. If you've backslided, this is the heart that we ought to come back to. The heart of the evening sacrifice. The heart of fasting and prayer. Because he starts to cry out to God. This is the genuine feeling of a reawakened backslider. And he says in verse 6 now, And I said, Oh my God. He's crying out. He's not just saying, My God. He's saying, Oh, in anguish. He's saying, Oh, in despair. He's saying, Oh, because it hurts. He's saying now he's describing something and he's ashamed. He's humiliated here. But he starts to confess and to repent. This is the best thing that we can do when we're living in a situation of desperation. Confess and repent. And he starts to identify here. He starts to come to the Lord in prayer. And he says here, Oh my God, I am too ashamed. I, I am here beyond ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you. He was filled with regret. That's, it's so sad when we go into sin. Guess what sin does to you? It fills you with regret. It does. And it says here, I am too ashamed, I'm embarrassed to lift up my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has grown up to the heavens. Our iniquities, our sin has risen so high above our heads now. We are past our heads now, and our guilt has grown up to the heavens. We are living in iniquity that's so far above our heads now, and the guilt has gone now to the heavens. 
In verse 7, now as he understands that they're living in sin, that they're living in guilt, he's going to show us now why he's going into prayer. And he says, since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been very guilty. Since day one, God's been faithful and we've been unfaithful. Since day one, it's been the same story. God delivers us and then we go back to that same thing. We have been very guilty for our iniquities. For we are, it says here, for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests have been delivered into the hand of the kings and to the lands and to the sword, to captivity. These are all the consequences of what they had experienced since day one because of sin. And these are also physical consequences that they were now experiencing to that day, to plunder and to humiliation as it is this day. You see that word at the end, humiliation? Isn't that what we experience when we start to play and we get comfortable with sin? Humiliation? Because of constant sin? We're paying the price and the consequences. He's saying here, from the days of our ancestors until now, we have been steeped in sin now, and, and we have paid the price from our kings and our priests. We have had it to answer to foreign kings, and the sword, we have been captured, we have been killed, and we have been disgraced because of our sin. Verse 8, And now for a little while, grace. I love this word. Now for a little while, grace. But in spite of all of that, grace. We've gone through all of that, but grace. Isn't that amazing there? That we were unfaithful to God, but He had grace. Oh, this is amazing because the Lord now took him to Babylon because they were unfaithful to the Lord. But God did not want to see them there forever, so He rescued that little remnant, the little piece, the surviving piece from Babylon to take them back to now Jerusalem, and that was grace. And here he's explaining, he says, Now for a little while grace has been shown from the Lord our God. First grace has been given from God. What is grace? He's been so good to us. The Lord has shown to us grace. He has extended grace to us here, our God, to leave us a remnant to escape. He's, he's given us a small portion of the nation of Israel to escape and to survive. To escape and to survive, it says, and to give us a peg in his holy place. What's a peg? Have you ever stood on a peg? Maybe something that gives you a boost or lets you stand securely. Well, that's what he's talking about. God has given us a peg now to stand here securely. He has given us a peg of safety now in this holy place to stand on. He has demonstrated to us grace. Not only did He bring us back from Babylon, He let us stand on something that's safe, His house. He let us stand on something that's secure, something that is holy now, it says here in this place, that our God may enlighten or open our eyes and give us a measure of revival in our bondage. Do you guys want a measure of revival even in a place of bondage? Lord, thank You because You took us out. You gave us grace. Not only did You give us grace, but You let us stand on a safe and secure place, Lord. And then you gave us a measure of revival in our bondage. What does it mean to revive? It means that we were dead in our backsliding. And you gave us a measure of revival in our bondage. We need that. We need a measure of revival. Whatever it is, the situation that we're in, we have to ask the Lord, give us a measure of revival. Give us a relief from our slavery because we are dying here in bondage. You see, last week we even talked about how... God's hand is good on those who seek Him. 
And if you start to seek him, do you believe he's going to give you a measure of revival? Now, Ezra here goes to prayer. And he says in verse 9, For we were slaves. You gave us a measure of revival when we were in bondage, when we were enslaved now to our sin. We were slaves, yet our God did not forsake us. That's grace. Not for a moment was I forsaken. Isn't that amazing that not for a moment you were forsaken? That not for a moment when you were in bondage or you were exiled in Babylon of this world, not for a moment did God forsake us in our bondage? Have you ever thought when you maybe turned your back on the Lord, but not for a moment did He abandon you? Not for a moment did He turn His back on you. Not for a moment did He stop showing His unfailing love to you. He was always still so kind to you. And that's what it tells us here. He, you did not forsake us in our bondage, but you extended mercy. That's what it says. You've extended mercy now. What does that mean that you've extended mercy? First, what did He do? In verse 8, you gave us grace. You showed grace. In verse 8, in verse 9, you extended mercy. In verse 8, you showed grace. And in verse 9, you've extended mercy to us. Unfailing love. You were patient. You were favorable. You were kind in spite of our sin. You were faithful in spite of our unfaithfulness here. You extended mercy to us in the sight of the king of Persia. How did he extend out mercy and favor in the sight of the king of Persia? Because the king of Persia said, go back to Jerusalem. Here's the money. Here's now the safety. Here are the articles to go and fund the project of the house of the Lord your God. Go back. The Lord has given them mercy. The Lord has given them grace. But why has the Lord given them grace? And why has the Lord given them mercy? You would ask yourself, why has the Lord given me grace? Why has the Lord still kept my marriage together this long, even after we have forsaken Him many times? Even after we've gone through so much, why has the Lord still been with me? Even after I've turned my back and been unfaithful to the Lord, why is He still so kind to me? Why has He given me grace? Why has He given me mercy? Why is it that after all this pain, after all the past, after all the grieving, why has the Lord still given me grace and mercy? Well, it talks about that now in verse 9. He says, you've given us here now the mercy and the grace to revive us, to repair the house of God and to rebuild its ruins and to give us a wall in Judah, in Jerusalem. You know why God gives you grace and mercy? For three reasons. To revive, number two, to repair, and number three, to rebuild. God didn't give you mercy so you can sit on that grace and mercy. God has given you grace and mercy. He's allowed you and been patient with you and been favorable to you. Not so that you can say, here, I'm just going to now sit on this grace and mercy. No, He's saying, I want you now to revive standing on this peg of grace and mercy. I want you to repair now that which was broken now and repair now th that which was hurt and torn on this grace and mercy. And I want you to rebuild the ruins from the ground up on this grace and on this mercy. So we have the problem sometimes in saying, Lord, thank you for grace and mercy, but I'm just going to just, you know, keep living my life. No, grace and mercy is an opportunity to revive. Grace and mercy is an opportunity now to repair. Grace and mercy is an opportunity to rebuild. 
And he's crying out to God, understanding, Lord, thank you for a safe and secure place. He's even saying, you've even given us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem to protect us. Now you've even given us protection, Lord, above all that. What does God want from us? He wants to revive us. He wants us to repair the house. And he wants us to now rebuild the ruins. And not only does he want you to do that, he also has provided the protection in those walls of Judah and Jerusalem. He's provided the protection so that you can revive, so that you can repair, so that you can rebuild. Today, can we repair? Can we revive and can we rebuild? Verse 10, And now, O God, and now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments. What are we going to say, Lord? We failed you again. Isn't that sometimes that we feel, oh Lord, we failed you again. What are we going to say now? Which you commanded by your servant, the prophet, saying the land which you are entering to possess, it's an unclean land. You warned us that this land was unpure. It was unclean with this uncleanness of the peoples of the land, with their abominations, which they have filled it from one end to another with their impurity. This world is filled with impurity, and the Lord had warned them. The worst thing about this is the Lord warned us. The Lord warns us through His Word. And the Lord had warned them not to intermarry. Now therefore, do not give your daughters as wives for their sons, nor take their daughters to your sons. And never, here's a, now the key core issue of it. Because when you start to intermarry, when you start to now seek relationships and start to now seek out the world for satisfaction, this is the core reason on why you're doing it. In verse 12 it tells us, And never seek their peace or prosperity. Never seek their peace and never seek their prosperity. You run into a very frustrated place in life in your spiritual walk when you start to seek their peace and when you start to seek their prosperity. That's the core sin. That's how they corrupted themselves because they started to seek the peace and they started to seek the prosperity of the world. Are you chasing the peace or the prosperity of the world? That can be very distracting when you start to seek the peace and seek the prosperity of them. God said, do not seek their peace. Do not seek their prosperity. Do not intermarry. Do not be mixed with them. Do not seek those things. Seek holy things. Seek good. Do not seek evil. Love the holy things and hate everything that is evil and never seek. It didn't say sometimes you can seek their peace. Sometimes you can seek their prosperity. Sometimes you can chase after what they have to offer you. No, it says never seek the peace that comes from the world and never seek the success or the prosperity comes from them so that, that you may be strong. You know when you're weak? You're weak when you're seeking the peace and you're weak when you're seeking the prosperity of the world and the possessions that can be so distracting, that can leave you empty. That's why we grow weak because we're seeking the peace and seeking the prosperity of where God has not called us to seek. It says that you may be strong and eat the good of the land, that you may eat the fruit and enjoy it and grow and leave it as an inheritance to your children forever. That you would grow your family on the prosperity of the foundation and of the land that God has built. And that is lasting right there. That is lasting. He said, abstain from all that so that you can be strong. And you can be strong enough to grow your family on something that is fruitful, on the produce of that land, that you'd be able to eat of the good of that land. You see, but how does that happen? That happens when you obey. Then you will be strong if you obey. 
And you will enjoy the produce of that land and you, the prosperity that you will find in the Lord. You will, able, you will be able to pass down to your children. And your family and your children will grow off of it. And it says, And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds, it says here now, And for our great guilt, since you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve, and have given us such deliverance as this. And isn't even after all of that, even after the warning, you've given us less than what we really deserve, Lord. We deserve even more than this. And in this guilt, you still delivered us. You've given less than what we actually deserve when it came to the consequences. And again, we have broken. It says, verse 14, should we again break your commandments? Think about how God's grace is. Are we abusing the grace of God? Because here he's saying, should we again break your commandments again and start to now practice these abominations and, and now the anger, your anger to rise up and consume the little of what's left of us here? That's what he's going to say. Because it says here, should we again break your commandments and join in marriage with the people committing these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you had consumed us so that there would be no remnant or survivor? Lord, it's by God's grace that we're still here. It's by God's grace He's saying that there's a little left. And should that little that's left go out and intermarry in sin so that even in that little that was left, Lord, your anger would be aroused against us again and then there would be nothing left, there would be no survival? What are they, putting, what are they doing here in their disobedience? In our disobedience, you put every opportunity of survival at risk. You put every opportunity of survival at risk because you're saying that you don't need God to continue. And that is a very dangerous place to, to live in. You see, he's now confessing here from verses 5 to 14. He is confessing without making excuses. And he's saying, no, we've sinned. We've blew it. You've delivered us. You've given us less than what we actually deserve. And with the little that's left, should we now arouse now your anger so that you can be more angry at us, Lord, and, and there would be no, none of the remnants survive? That we would never last and make it? Verse 15, it says, Oh, again, oh. This is the third oh in the, fir in the first 15 verses. Oh, Lord, God of Israel, you are righteous, for we are left as a remnant. Lord, you're a just you are just. You are the God of Israel. We are left as survivors today. We are left now as now a remnant, as those that have escaped. But look what he says here now. As little as we are, as weak as we are, look what he says here in verse 15. Here as a remnant, as it is this day, here we are before you. He still comes before the Lord. He's crying out before the Lord, Here we are before you in our guilt. We've come before you because we need help. Though no one can stand before you because of this. No one should be able to stand before you because of this. And here we are in guilt. Here we are before you as nothing, as such a small people. Here we are before you. I love that he says, Here we are before you. What does it say in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16? Paul tells the church in Hebrews 4.16, Let us therefore come boldly now to the throne of grace. Let us come boldly to the throne of grace. God is calling you to come boldly to the throne of grace. 
He's called you to come now and come and approach the throne of grace and say, here I am at the throne of grace because I'm filled with guilt or maybe I'm filled with shame or maybe there's something taking place in my life and it says here that we may obtain mercy and grace. Isn't this exactly what they obtained? Mercy and grace and find it to help in time of need. Do you have, is there a time of need in your life right now? Is this today the time of need? Is the time of need today where you say, I need to come to find help? You know how you find help? When you're looking for help. You're only finding help when you're looking for help. And you know the best place and the only place to find it is at the throne of grace. There you go when you need help and in time of need. And that's exactly what he was doing. He was looking for help. He was looking for help. And he found it when he went now before the Lord. He said, here I am. Here we are in guilt. Now is a time of need. And here we've come to help to find it. See, you don't have to live in shame and you don't have to live in guilt anymore when you know that you can come to the throne of grace. You don't have to live that way anymore. And sometimes the thing that, this, that the enemy wants to do is to discourage us from going and, and believing that Christ is approachable and that we can go to the throne of grace. You see, it says, come boldly to the throne of grace. Boldly doesn't mean come arrogantly. It doesn't mean come proudly. It doesn't mean come with a presumption or a preconceived notion or idea that you're good. No, boldly means that you're coming consistently to the throne of grace because you need help. And that's the only place that you're going to find help. You're not going to find it by calling a friend. You're not going to find it by, by going and surrounding yourself with people. You're going to find it at the throne of grace. And that's exactly what Ezra is teaching us. Go to the throne of grace if you need mercy. Go to the throne of grace if, if that's where you're going to find that grace that you are, uh, need. And that time and that help during that moment of your life. Boldly also means come without reservation. Don't come pretending that it's okay. Come being real to the Lord. Come to the throne of grace. Boldly also means come without any fancy words. Just come just as you are to the throne of grace. It means come with confidence. Come knowing that there, there is the place where you're going to find the answer to your prayer. And come with persistence. Because that's exactly where in the time of need that you should be. You don't belong anywhere else than there at the throne of grace in the time of need. I'm going to invite you to go to Psalms 51. This is one of my favorite Psalms when it comes to the throne of grace. Because here we see even now King David, the psalmist, as he had blown it. And we see that he wrote this Psalms, Psalms 51, at a time where he was now confronted with the sin of adultery and of murder that he had committed when he had now entered into that temptation with Bathsheba. And he understands that he's living now in that guilt and in that shame of his sin. Do you know that sin will only lead you to guilt and to shame? And it's ugly. It's one of the ugliest things you ever experience. When you're walking with the Lord and you, and you enter into temptation and you feel like this dark, deep cloud over your life, hovering over you of oppression, of guilt, and of shame. You know what David does here? He does the same thing that Ezra does. He goes to the throne of grace because there he can find help in time of need. You want to find the help? The only place you're going to find it is in the throne of grace. But look what it says in Psalms 51 here. Have mercy upon me. Again, oh God, he's crying out. Lord, I am not good. I'm not perfect. I am imperfect. I, I am a sinner according to 
your loving kindness, it says, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Isn't this so much more comforting when you know that He has a multitude of kindness and now He is loving kindness. He's according to His loving kindness, according to His tender mercies. It says, blot out now my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is always before me against you and only you have I sinned and done evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, he says, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire here truth in the inward parts. And it says that in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Look what he now begs for in verse 7. The psalmist, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. He said here, Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. In verse 7 he says, Purge me and wash me. That's what we need at the throne of grace. And it says here now, verse 8, Make me hear the joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Have you listened to anything but bad news recently that you're so sad? That maybe the situation in your, in your life now are bones that are broken, that those bones would rejoice, that you would hear joy. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. What is he asking for in verse 10? He's asking, Lord, create in me a clean heart, and renew me. Create a clean heart and renew my spirit. That's coming in the throne of grace. That's coming open. That's coming real. That's saying, Lord, I need you. And then it goes on in verse 11. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Man, that's, that's powerful. The worst thing that you want is to the Lord to take away his presence and the Holy Spirit from you. Lord, I know that I've blown it. Lord, I know that I blew it, but I'm coming to the throne of grace because I need here grace and mercy. I need help, and this is the time of need, and I'm only going to find it here. This is the only place I'm going to find it. I know that I've blown it, Lord. Do not take away your Holy Spirit from me. Don't take away. You know what he was asking here? Now the psalmist, he was asking something that was very dear to him. You know what he was asking for? Because he knew it personally. Don't take away the anointing. Sin takes away the anointing. You know when David was anointed king, it said that the oil was dripping down. That's how they would anoint him. And he's saying, Lord, don't take your hand upon me. Don't take the anointing away from me. Look what he goes on and he says in verse 12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Restore joy. Restore joy. You can be happy, but you would be missing joy in sin. Restore joy of the salvation and uphold me or hold me up in your generous spirit. You know what uphold means? It means that hold me up in your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. Then and only then. When you stand behind me, when you uphold me, when your spirit's upon me, when you wash me and you cleanse me, I will teach now those that are transgressing your ways and they will be converted to you. Let's read verse 14 as we end. Deliver me from the guilt of of bloodshed. Why guilt of bloodshed? Because he had committed murder. And maybe today we want the Lord to, to deliver us from guilt. 
We don't have to live in guilt. We can live in grace. We don't have to live now in shame. We can live in mercy. We don't have to live surrounded by the foreigners and the gods and the abominations of the foreigners. We can live in the throne of grace. And it says in verse 14 here, Deliver me from the bloodshed, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud your righteousness. Lord, we want our tongue to sing to you. Because we came to the throne of grace and we found what we were looking for. We found help. We found help. Lord, we need help. Today we found help. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, I thank you so much. And I ask, Lord, right now by the power of your Spirit, Lord,